Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry, I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, September 18th, 2012. You know, I cannot remember the last time we did a full-blown Paula White update. This takes me back to, like, the beginning of Fighting for the Faith. It's kind of been about that long. And she's up to the same shenanigans. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. So if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know that uh, I, I had a conundrum today, not much of a big conundrum, but the question came up as to... All right, if I'm going to do a Paula White update, what music would go well with a Paula White update? Um, yeah, it's, it's been a long time since we've done a Paula White update, and I find it actually apropos to do a Paula White update with today being the day that we're going to have the last installment of our Vertical Church Tour uh, yeah, debrief. Okay, The reason why I find it apropos is this. If you remember, I've been bemoaning the fact that James McDonald, despite the fact that he is um, oddly um, and somewhat correctly pointing out the fact that there's a whole lot of false teaching going on in the church today, and of course the Vertical Church book and his tour is supposed to be part of the solution to that, but I'll explain why it's going to fall short today. Uh, we're going to get to the punchline. This is the thing I wanted to get to yesterday, we're going to get to today. But um, he, he, remember, um, he is almost single-handedly responsible. Um, now, granted, he had an accomplice in the crime that he committed earlier this year, and that accomplice was Mark Driscoll at Elephant Room 2. Uh, the two of them, uh, James McDonald bearing the, the, the greater burden, the greater blame here, and uh, his accomplice, Mark Driscoll, basically uh, threw softball questions at um, T.D. Jakes, in order to uh, smuggle him into the mainstream of uh, of American evangelicalism and say, listen, there's, you know, 
Yeah, that, that modalism stuff, he, he's more Trinitarian-ish, except for he just prefers to express his ideas about the doctrine of the Godhead in modalistic terms. <laughs> it was, anyway, completely abysmal. So here's the, here's the deal. Today we're going to be doing a Paula White update. Guess who is almost single-handedly responsible for Paula White? Answer, T.D. Jakes. T.D. Jakes is Paula White's mentor. T.D. Jakes is the guy who helped bring Paula White into the mainstream. And so, there, it, it, the, you know, if you were to think of it as like degrees of separation, there's not many. Okay. I, in fact, <laughs> talk about how what a nerd I am. I was excited last week to see the news that Google now has bacon numbers. And you're thinking, what's a bacon number? Have you ever heard of six degrees of Kevin Bacon? Apparently, it's, you know, there's a game that goes way back to the 90s. I remember people talking about it back then. Anyway, so if you were to t- if you wanted to know uh you know how many degrees of separation there are be- there there are between a particular actor or actress and Kevin Bacon you all you have to do is go to Google and type in um the name of the actor or actress and then along with the na- with the word bacon number just you know like if you Sean Connery you type in Sean Connery bacon number and no kidding the first you know, the first page that Google comes up with it'll say Sean Connery bacon number and I don't know if his bacon number is 2 I think it's 2 anyway but so <laughs> talk about degrees of separation here um there's there's only 1 degree of separation between James McDonald and um and Paula White, uh, and that's T.D. Jakes. That's the one degree of separation. T.D. Jakes is the link between the two of them. So we're, in fact, we got so much to do today. We're gonna have to dive into. It. Let's talk about what we're gonna do today. We got a Paula White update. Got to do this because she's out there engaging in what I consider to be one of the most blasphemous, blasphemous fleecings, uh, fleecing attempts out there. It's absolutely blasphemous what she's doing. But this is not the first time we've covered this on this program. The issue is it's been a long time since we've covered it, and I thought it'd be apropos to bring it up today. And then what we're going to do, take a break. When we come back, we're going to dive back into um, my analysis on James McDonald's Vertical Church Tour and uh, and what he said at the Vertical Church uh, event in Indianapolis and why his reading, uh, or, you know, a summary of Exodus 32 and 34, it, it misses the point. Kind of like the way I, his idea of Isaiah 64 verse 1 misses the point of what it is that Isaiah is getting at in that chapter. Uh, much the same way. Uh, and so as a result of it, all James McDonald was able to accomplish at the Vertical Church event in Indianapolis, and I'm assuming he's doing the same thing across the country, is basically browbeat beat people with the law. That's just about it. Yeah, like that's the solution we need. By the way, it's part of the solution. What we need is uh, what we need are preachers who will preach both law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And by the way, the glory of God, which we will discuss in uh, in Exodus 34, is more than just a glowy showy thing you know like whoo look it's the like as if you know somehow god's glory is like the aurora borealis and it's like like that's the point of the text no actually there's words that go along with the the revealing of god's glory even the backside of it that must be paid attention to if you're to understand properly what is the glory of god and so and how jesus christ himself is 
glorified. So we're going to talk about that. All right, so uh, we got that. And then in hour number two, we're going to be listening to a Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley sermon entitled, Take Heed How You Hear. Take heed how you hear. Notice the alliteration here. Well done, Pastor Charmley, on that, by the way. Um, <laughs> so with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And I got I to gotta thank every one of you who came up with different options for the music that I should play for my Paula White updates. And I got to tell you, real close, I was really close to picking the Santana song, Black Magic Woman. But um, I I found this humble little submission by one of our listeners to fit perfectly. And so let me now preview for you our Paula White update music. Here we go. We might need some karaoke lyrics to go with that for Paula White. Yeah, she works hard for the money. By the way, uh, it's um, tis the season for the fall festivals in uh, in Judaism, and um, including the Day of Atonement. And wouldn't you know what? Paula White is at it again, basically uh, passing off false doctrine as if it's true doctrine, and trying to bring us back. This is like. Um, she's a Judaizer of like the, the, the worst kind because she's not even a Jew. And, um, she's basically going into the book of Leviticus, looking at the, uh, the biblical descriptions of the, the festivals that, uh, that the Jews, um, observed in old Testament times, by the way, these fall under the category of ceremonial law. Remember, uh, the, the old Testament law there's three different uh, groupings for it. You got the moral law, which we're all still bound to. You know, you don't lie, cheat, murder, steal, commit adultery. You know, things like that. Have other gods. That still uh, th- that's that's uh, applies to everybody, everywhere, every time. And, and those are kind of brought forward into the New Testament. Then you have the civil laws that uh, uh, basically are for the nation of Israel itself. Okay, and. Um, and back in Old Testament times, the the theocracy of Israel, um, that's you consider that like a constitution. That is not, you know, the, we are not beholden to that. Although it does reveal a lot about God's character. And then you have the ceremonial laws. Okay, think about all the ceremonial laws regarding clean and unclean sacrifices for sin, for when you're cured of a skin disease and things like that. This, those are the ceremonial laws that are, are, are that really focus on the tabernacle and then later on the temple. All of those were types and shadows that are fulfilled by Christ. Christ, they all point to Christ, and Christ is now fulfilled all of that. And we as Christians are not bound by those. We're not bound by new moon festivals and things like that. I'll be quoting from the Book of Colossians here shortly, but um, I'm going to be playing for you. 
Um, recent, uh, uh, this is from a recent broadcast of Paula White uh, on her program that airs on TBN and selected channels. Um, if you're uh, up late at night flipping through, you know, like the Discovery Channel and things like that, you know, these are like at the infomercial time. But man, this is a wicked teaching. And stay in here for the punchline because you're you if you're thinking. Well, she's trying to be biblical. No, no, no. This is a facade. This is a biblical teaching facade by a woman who calls herself a pastor, which, by the way, uh, the Bible does not know of any women pastors. Get over it if you don't believe me. Take it up with God the Holy Spirit and deal with what his word says. But anyway, here's Pastrix Paula White explaining how we honor God by observing the Day of Atonement. No kidding. Here we go. If it's important to God, it must be important to us. Today I want to expound on the feast, the Day of Atonement. We're entering into the feast season, and it is the fall feast. Now there's a lot of spiritual activity that takes place because we're getting ready to approach God's most holy day. That is the Day of Atonement. Now when you say atonement, a lot of times people say, wait a minute, that was the Old Testament. Remember the Old Testament is a type and a shadow of everything. It was not the fullness of it because Jesus fulfilled it, and the feasts, some of them, tabernacles, still have to be fulfilled in the fullness of it. So the Feast of Tabernacles apparently has to still be fulfilled. Weird that the apostles didn't tell us this. Don't you think that's weird? Yeah. Um, but it was a type and shadow to lay out to us principles that are eternal, that we were never released from, that although we don't follow the ritual and the routine of the Day of Atonement, in other words, we don't have a high priest who goes in and has to slaughter a lamb or a ram and put the sprinkle the blood. And so how is it that we're supposed to observe the Day of Atonement without the slaughtering of a sacrifice? I mean, how do you know that we've been set free from that? You know, I mean, here she just, you know, trust me when I tell you, there's a punchline here. When I, when I play the punchline, you're going to go, oh, 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 Holy of holies, put it on the scapegoat, and that we are covered for one year for our sin. We're not released from the principle because all feasts, divine appointments, were set up by God on his calendar as part of the blood covenant made with mankind. Uh-huh, really? Do you have a text for that? By the way, I'd like to uh, quote for you from the Apostle Paul. Um, by the way, um, Paul's credentials, if you would like to know them, uh, you can find Paul's credentials regarding his understanding of Judaism found in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Let me read to you Paul's credentials. Here's what it says. Verse 4. Um, circumcised. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Mm -hmm. That's his qualifications. By the way, he was taught by Gamaliel. I mean, um, Paul knew Judaism inside and out. And do you think the apostle Paul was saying, listen, 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 you know, Okay, yeah, Jesus fulfilled, yeah, the, the Day of Atonement's types and shadows and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, listen, um, we're still under the whole, yeah, the principles of the Day of Atonement apply. Well, actually, they don't. And uh, I have no less of an authority than the Apostle Paul himself. Let me read to you. Colossians chapter 2. I'll start at verse 8 for context. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 
For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Verse 16, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about their visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and are not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together uh, through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Did you catch that? Um, so it, I find it odd that that uh, the Apostle Paul wasn't insisting that Christians observe the Day of Atonement. In fact, church history tells us rather clearly that Christians didn't observe the Day of Atonement. The only ones who were in, in, insisting on it were the Judaizers. They were the ones insisting that Christian Jews or Christians follow these festivals as well. And Paul says, Peshaw, not at all, right? So here we've got uh, Paula White basically insisting that we, there's a principle in the Day of Atonement and we've got to observe it. Now, trust me when I tell you there's a punchline here. I keep mentioning the punchline because when you hear the punchline, the, the veil will be lifted from your eyes and you will go, you have got to be kidding me. Trust me, it's that bizarre. I, I, so here we go. Well, let's continue. We are to honor God and recognize the power of the blood of Jesus. And when we do this, there's special reward. There's great things that open us up to us spiritually. Ah, so there's great rewards if we will just recognize and, well, the, the, the spiritual principles at play with the so-called Day of Atonement the way she understands it. There's revelation. And there's, there's just simply, and I'll get into it. Now, the slide on the screen says there are eight rewards for honoring God in the season of, of, of atonement. Did you know that? Apparently there's eight rewards if you will honor God in the season of atonement. Hmm. Eight different types of rewards that come into your life when you have the revelation and the obedience of honoring God on his most holy day. So let's go to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1 and 2. Yeah, please. The Bible says, The Lord spake to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them concerning the feast, which is the same word as divine appointment, which you shall proclaim to be. Yeah, I don't think so. Holy convocations. Now think of it like a camp meeting. Think of it as a consecrated time, a time that we set apart and say, this is a day that God sets apart or a season that God sets apart as holy to him. Even these are my feast. God said, they're my divine appointments. Also on the 10th day of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you and you shall afflict your soul. What's that? talking about it's the only time that God requires us to fast let me lay out the fall feast or the fall divine appointments okay so apparently okay
okay, we're required to have a convocation on the Day of Atonement, and we're required to fast, apparently, on the Day of Atonement. Because remember, man has a calendar, and God has a calendar. Mm -hmm. And when you come in divine alignment, there is great blessing released in your life because it is your opportunity Mm -hmm. to honor God. So you've got to come into a divine alignment, and then God will bless you. And so you're asking, okay, so how is it that I fulfill the requirements today as an as a new testament christian um to come into divine alignment so i can have these eight blessings of the day of atonement that's the punchline hang on i'll get to it for his blood covenant made with you to appropriate that blood to apply it and to see the blessings released in your life so as we stand so the day of atonement is coming up on september 26 what are we going to do how do we release the eight blessings of the day of atonement god's most holy day which this year is on september 26 and we honor god according to the word which i'll take you from genesis to revelation and show it to you when we honor god what we're doing is saying we put the blood you know it looks like she's had plastic surgery um just saying um her face looks a little stiff it it doesn't quite have the same expressions as she's had in the past i'm just thinking maybe she's had some work done we appropriate the blood covenant that was given to us through you know it doesn't look nearly as bad as joyce meyer though have any of you all noticed that joyce meyer really looks like the joker It's, it's creepy to watch her son jesus christ for this year that is ahead of us and as you do that there is great blessing great reward that is released into your life there are three particular feasts in the fall feast season there are seven feasts total three feast seasons the fall feast consists of the feast of trumpets which is also rosh hashanah it's the head of the new year which means it's kind of like our january one it's it's a new year it's the head of the year so it's a new beginning then it goes into 10 days of all. Now, those 10 days of all are really important because that is a time of contemplation, of reflection, of making the wrongs right, of forgiveness, of allowing the love of God. Kind of a season of penitence and, and fasting. Got it. Do okay. a work in your life. It's a day of preparation or a time of preparation because before you come to the day of atonement, God's saying, get it right. Make things right. Mm. Don't, don't go into the day of atonement my most holy day i mean when you think about the blood of jesus he says you don't trample on that blood yeah so you you don't want to be trampling on the blood of jesus i mean and you do this apparently like without even knowing it by forgetting that you have a divine appointment for the the day of atonement on the 24th so uh, what's the punchline here i'm getting to it just hang on and wait for it you don't take that blood lightly you don't just plow through as if the blood has no power or no consequences to disregarding it because there are yeah i don't even know what she's talking about. so he's saying i want you to look i want you to examine your life and we'll get into that within depth then there's the day of atonement and the reason that god says afflict your souls is the only day that was required for fasting and then it goes into the tabernacles, which is for eight days. And that's really party time. They would celebrate in booths and huts in the Old Testament, dance, fellowship, family, food. So you can think of it kind of like this, the engagement, the wedding, and the honeymoon. That's the simplest way of thinking of the fall seasons. So remember, if it's important to God, it must be important to us. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, okay. Again, this this falls into the category, don't let anyone deceive you with plausible-sounding arguments. Because Day of Atonement, um, that for, for us now, is um, that would be Good Friday. 
that's the great high day of atonement. Um, there, is there a temple in uh, Jerusalem? No, there is no temple in Jerusalem. Um, God got rid of it. Uh huh. It was an act of judgment on God's part. Why? Because we don't need it anymore. The one sacrifice for all sins has already been accomplished on the same mount, by the way, Moriah, the same mount that the temple is uh, was on, same mount that uh, God uh, asked um, Abraham to uh, sacrifice his son Isaac on. Something to keep in mind, but. Anyway, okay, so how is it that, well, how can I release these, these eight blessings? We'll get to it. Hang on. It's not so much that we're doing something wrong. It's often that we're not doing enough of what is right. C.S. Lewis said in regards to the... Pre- yeah, by the way, C.S. Lewis did not celebrate the Day of Atonement. Weird, huh? ...principle of first fruits and the feast, that when you put first thing first, secondary things fall into place. Now, uh-huh, yeah, but he wasn't talking about the Day of Atonement. That's my way of paraphrasing it. I don't have the exact quote in front of me. Yeah, I wonder if you even read it in context. Basically, he said, prioritize. He was taking from Matthew six thirty three, saying, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Uh-huh, his righteousness. That would be the righteousness of Christ given to us by faith. Got it? And then all these things will be added unto you. So if it's important to God, it yeah. has to be important to us. Yeah, you know, just because you repeat it over and over again doesn't make it make this teaching correct or true. Now, harvest time is threshing time. What do you mean by that? Yeah, what do you mean? Whenever we're getting ready to harvest, whenever there's getting ready to be um, a harvest of souls, your family's getting ready to... Uh, yeah, harvest time in, in ancient Israel, you know what that was? <laughs> that was when they would harvest their crops. It was a farming harvest time. So why did you switch the subject over to harvest of souls? You know, you're allegorizing a very real um, historical annual, in fact, several times a year type of thing. Come together. Your financial breakthroughs getting ready to come in. The- oh yeah, your financial breakthroughs getting getting ready to come in. Yeah, this is where the, kind of the beginning of the punchline starts to come in because a harvest of souls. This is when your financial breakthrough is getting ready to come. Did you plant your financial breakthrough with your uh, financial breakthrough seeds? Oh, well, uh, good news. Harvest time's coming in. Promises of God according to the word of God. It's threshing time. Now, threshing uh-huh. time is yeah. not always a pleasant time yeah. because before you bring forth that which is pure, before you bring the oil from the olive, it has to be crushed. Yeah, that's because that's what you do when you harvest olives and make olive oil. Um, so, uh, so what do you, how, 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 before you bring the wheat, she's allegorizing this text that becomes fine flour. It goes through a process at the threshing floor. Yeah. So there's this process that takes place. And the, these, the fall feast season have a lot to do with processing ourselves to bring forth harvest. Uh, yeah, no, this is not what this text in Leviticus is talking about. To bring forth... Ar- You're like eisegeting now. Aren't you ready for harvest? Yeah, um, not, eisegeting in order to reap a harvest for yourself money-wise. By the way, that's kind of the, the point of the punchline. Stay with me for a second. ...in the goodness of God. So there is a harvest of souls, of people that have not yet been formed as a people, that God is coming for. They're marked, they're chosen, they're selected, but there is a threshing that the the body of Christ has to go through, that the earth has to go through. And so a lot of the Feast of Trumpets, the Ten Days of All, has to do with prepare ye the way of the Lord. Just like when John the Baptist stood in Matthew chapter 3, before Jesus came and he said, 
And he said, the prophet Isaiah. Yeah, she's off on a tangent right now. I'm pretty convinced that she's just engaging in biblical subterfuge in order to fill up the time to make this look like it's some kind of coherent biblical teaching so that we can get to the punchline of, oh, what do I need to do to release God's blessings uh, during the Day of Atonement. I prepare the way of the Lord. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he was saying prepare, which means to make adjustments, to make ready, which means to cut in advance. So there's a time and a season, a proclamation for every biblical truth. The biblical truth of the fall feast is get ready for harvest. Okay, so get, so this is the biblical principle. Get ready for harvest. Uh-huh. Prepare yourself. Yeah, you know, because, you know, have are you waiting for your financial breakthrough? Examine your heart. Yeah. Examine your life. Prioritize God. Allah. Make sure that you understand the holiness of the blood covenant. Mm-hmm. Un- yeah, yeah. Understand on, on the, the practical ways that we prepare through prayer. Through fasting. Yeah. I mean, this sounds really pious. We're going to prepare for the upcoming harvest in our own life by prayer and fasting. What else? Through repentance. Uh Uh-huh. And? Through meditation. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. What's the difference between prayer and meditation? So prayer, repentance, it sounds so pious. when you're talking. But there's something very practical she's trying to get at. But she's easing us into it. Meditation is where you sit and you listen for God to speak back. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I just sit. Yeah, we talked about that yesterday. In my chair for two or three hours, and I wait on the Lord. It sounds like a waste of time. So they're very practical things. I read His Word, stay in His Word. I have to bring an offering to Him according to Deuteronomy sixteen. See, there it is, Deuteronomy sixteen sixteen. You have to bring an offering. By the way, that's what this is all about. How is it that Paula White wants you to make sure that you don't miss your divine appointment so that you can have these eight blessings of the Day of Atonement released in your life? Well, you got to bring a, you got to bring an offering. That's the point she's trying to get you to. 16. Malachi 3, which we all talk about, bring the tithe and offerings. The word offerings are, refers to feast seasons. There are three times a year that were mandated, just like with tithe, to bring the Lord a consecrated, holy, prayed-after offering. And I believe that as you obey God and you you come in alignment with that, you really open up great reward to be released in your life. Ah, so that's it. So how is it that we're supposed to observe the Day of Atonement so that we can have the the eight blessings of the Day of Atonement? Well, it's really simple. You need to send money to Paula White. Yeah, that's really what this is about. In fact, here's uh, the commercial that appears just a minute or so later uh, from Paula White's program so that you can hear that really what this is all about is Paula White giving us a biblical teaching on the Day of Atonement, telling you that the principles still apply and, and how you can't show up you know, empty-handed before God. And so how can you have these eight blessings of the Day of Atonement released in your life? Real simple. Send money to Paula White. Yeah, that's what this is about. Listen in. There is a revelation established through our covenant with God that will bring you the power you need to overcome, as well as forgiveness, wholeness, restoration, healing, and deliverance. Do you want forgiveness, wholeness, restoration, healing, and deliverance? It is one of the most important commandments from God in all of the Bible. Uh Uh-oh. It is His most holy day. The the most holy day of atonement. Day of atonement. God commanded His people to honor these holy days forever as an everlasting covenant with Him. 
as the most important and holiest day of the year to God, we must honor Him as He requires with a sacrificial offering. Uh-oh, so we, did you, we must honor God with a sacrificial offering. For the Day of Atonement. Deuteronomy 16 says, No one shall appear before the Lord empty-handed. Yeah, you better not appear before God empty-handed. Oh, no, what I... Oh, what do I do? God is demanding money. Where do I send it? Every man shall give as he is able. This is your opportunity to receive eight specific promises from God. Increase. Okay, so here's the promises. Increase, revelation, fresh anointing, God's power. Restoration, financial abundance, no shame but deliverance in God's presence. And all you got to do is send a check to Paula White. Fresh anointing, God's power, restoration, financial abundance, no shame but deliverance, and God's presence. Call, write, or go online right now and give your very best atonement offering along with your prayer request. When you do, we will rush to you as... Yeah, so send your very best atonement offering to Paula White so that you can experience these eight, because God's demanding that you better not show up empty-handed on the Day of Atonement. So send your money to Paula White now. Wow. Utter blasphemy. Utter blasphemy. She certainly does work hard for her money. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> God's word, he takes your tithe and spends it on private jets. 
Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, nowhere in the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy does it say that you have to pay Paula White an offering on the Day of Atonement in order to release blessings. That's just a lie. Just a reminder. Boy, it's weird talking about money. Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. And unlike the heretics, listen, I, I can't promise that there's, you're going to be blessed or anything like the sword. Uh, when you support Fighting for the Faith... What you're doing is partnering with us to help us get the message out of the true gospel of sound biblical doctrine and teaching people how to listen to false teachers and as well as good teachers with discernment. Um, what it is, it's a partnership. And when you send in your money to help support us, well, 
uh, I you I can't promise that that gold fairy dust is going to fall on you and that you're going to be able to fly to Neverland or anything like that. Nothing of the sort. In fact, that would be preposterous. Instead, what I can guarantee is that by supporting us, it keeps us on the air and makes it so that we can keep doing what we're doing and be a beacon for the truth. So if you'd like to partner with us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. There's two there, one that says donate, the other says join our crew. The join our crew button, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Moving along. Look out, look out, pink elephants on parade, here they come. They're here, and there are pink elephants everywhere. Look out, look out, they're walking around the bed, on their head, clippity-cloppity, parade, in great pink elephants on parade. What'll I do, what'll I do, what an unusual view. I can stand the sight of worms. Yeah, James McDonald update. Microscopic germs, but technicolor pachyderms is really too much for me. <laughs> I am not the type to faint when things are odd or things are quaint, but seeing things you know that ain't can certainly give you an awful fright. What a sight! Chase them away! Chase them away! I'm afraid. Need your aid, pink elephants on parade. Pink elephants. All right. Yeah, that's yeah. in honor of the uh, Elephant Room. By the way, I think he's going to be doing Elephant Room 3. I think the uh, the message that he sent out that it won't be as controversial this year. And in fact, from what it sounds like, Elephant Room 3 might end up being like a, you know, a, 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 a Harvest Bible Chapel internal leadership development kind of thing. Anyway, we'll see when uh, once the speakers are announced. But anyway, uh, this is our uh, third and final installment on the uh, Vertical Church event that I attended last week. And uh, yesterday was a transition uh, portion, and and I needed to put that in there in order to build on this so that you know where we're at. And uh, where we're going to pick up today is he's going to kind of steer now into the story of Moses on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, the whole golden calf incident, and then... Moses receiving his glory. This is somehow hooked in his mind to Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1, um, about God coming down and rending the mountains and, you know, and the heavens and all that kind of stuff. So you see the problem, there's a problem in the church. And the solution apparently is God showing up in manifest glory. And, um, I demonstrated yesterday that he missed the punchline from Isaiah 64, and he's going to miss the punchline here, too, which ultimately is going to demonstrate that his concept regarding the vertical church, it's pretty much just, you know, some big experience that he wants people to have, and, um, you know, that somehow, you know, stories of life change, uh, spirit-filled whatevers, and, and things like that, but... Exodus 34, there's a key element to the glory of God that he doesn't mention, which is the key to understanding the passage. Here's James McDonald now as he transitions into his discussion 
of the book of Exodus. Here we go. Exodus 32. I want to show you there. Um, I said that Isaiah was a giant, and he is. But Moses is like the greatest person in the whole Bible. Obviously, other than Jesus. Did you know that? That Moses is the greatest person in the Bible. Now, just so you know, when I was there and I heard him say that, (laughs) I (laughs) said to the people I was with, I said, well, that wasn't Jesus' opinion. Jesus said that uh, John the Baptist, that there was, you know, of, of the people born of, you know, women, that there, there was none greater than John the Baptist. So, you know, I said that, and then no sooner did I say that, that uh, he starts talking about Theology Boy and the critic, you know, <clears throat> which he knew I was there. So it makes me wonder if he had me in mind when he said this. Did you know that? Yeah. What was the greatest person in the Bible? Oh, here he goes again. I thought thought Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest person in the Bible. Fine. 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 John the Baptist is the greatest person in the Bible. Jesus said it. How many people agree with Jesus on that point? He said it, right? But all I'm saying is we don't know why. Dressed weird. He ate funny stuff. He got a little cranky at the end of his life. I'm like, Lord, we totally trust you that he's the greatest, but you realize you did not provide much data on that point. Because Jesus is right, John the Baptist is the greatest, but if you look into the Bible, Moses is kicking John the Baptist's self. And, I mean, big time. I mean, you're like, well, what about Elijah? He called down fire from heaven. Moses did that every day. What about what about um, what, what about Joseph? He 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 got to be number two in all of Egypt. Yeah, you know, uh, Moses uh, took a pharaoh down. Okay, remember? Do you know all this part? You guys know a little bit about Moses? I won't spend a ton of time on this. How many plagues were there? Yeah, I, I would say that God took a pharaoh down. <clears throat> That's the greater theological point going on there. How many plagues? Just call out like the freakiest one. Frogs, right? For sure, frogs is the freakiest. Okay. And scariest plague? Darkness. Creepiest plague? Water to blood. Painful plague? Boils. Heart-rending plague? That's the first one. So, this is quite a thing. And the Pharaoh was on his knees at the end, right? And, and so then Moses, two million people, come on. At least two million people out of Egypt, two million people with him. And the, the Israelites or the Hebrews or the Egyptians change their mind and they start chasing them. So chariots walking. And, and then they get to the edge of, they get to the, that would have been better with puppets. They, they get to the edge of the. Now, this is all very, um, enter. But see, I think this little portion right here is indicative of the problem in the church that he's bemoaning. He, on the one hand, he's complaining about the fact that church is about God, that he, he said he was going to preach a sermon. Um, and he, just like his seeker-driven buddies, uh, Furtick and Noble and others, um, spends a huge amount of time doing stand-up comedy rather than exegeting the Word of God. So, yeah, um, it's like the, uh, the, the Jesus talking about the person with the log in his eye makes me wonder. What's the body of water called? The Red Sea. Just already the ten plagues makes him stratospherically above John the Baptist as far as we know. <laughs> so now, 
What happens when they get to the sea? It opens up in front of them. Okay. Then, after they get through, on dry land I might add, the whole sea caves back in on top of all their enemies. Thank you and good night. <laughs> this is another day in the life of Moses. Then they go out into the wilderness every day. They get bread from heaven. Every day. Oh, except for one day a week, then they get double. Thank you. One day a week they get double. And then, uh, but this didn't go on for like a month. Okay. This was 40 years. And all the other years around the 40 years, it went on for a long time. And they got water from a rock. And when the bread wasn't enough, they got meat for a while. And that's a whole story. And, and, and uh, oh, did, did you hear about the day that um, the ground swoop opened up? Swallowed all the cranky, rebellious people gone. That's a gift I pray for. Yeah, I bet it would save you a lot of money on your um, catapult that you recently preached about. You know, the, launching people who oppose the vision, you know, out of the church parking lot and into the next county. I mean, how useful would it be if God just opened up the earth and swallowed up those people who challenge the vision of the leader, huh? How sweet would it be to come to church some Sunday morning and the ushers were saying, man, we need you to sit in this section. <laughs> so I want to sit there, not just this week. From now on, you can sit wherever you want. Right? And, and, uh, but this is Moses. He takes, he takes a tablet and he goes up on a mountain and the finger of God inscribes the law. And then he comes down and anger breaks it takes another tablet up to God and says, do it again. <laughs> Moses, Moses. And the reason I kind of said that in a funny way is because I think part of the shock of it is that it's so outrageous. I mean, does anyone here have one story like that? <laughs> so irrefutably vertical and awesome and God and miraculous. Okay, notice <clears throat> his definition of vertical here is the miraculous, the the big, the showy, the... <clears throat> we continue. Actually, not like that, but we have quite a few. Irrefutable God stories. And every Christian should have a wallet full of those. Um, I have a Bible full of them. Why should every Christian have a wallet full of God stories? Got a problem here because just by definition, this wallet full of God stories, the way it's being pitched, puts it on par with the stories in Scripture. The matter is, is we've built a theology that defends God's absence instead of searching the Scriptures for why He's not working. Well, here in Exodus 32. Yeah, that's an important line. Let me highlight that again. Listen again. The fact of the matter is, is we've built a theology that defends God's absence instead of searching the scriptures for why he's not working. So apparently, I mean, unless there's like miraculous uh, God stories going on in your church, um, then you have a theology that's defending God's absence rather than his presence. Is that what the Bible teaches? Answer, no, it doesn't. Does God answer prayer? You bet your bippy he answers prayer. But God doesn't always answer prayer the way we want it, and I am so thankful for that. Okay? 
I, let me give you Walter Martin's example that he that he made famous. Okay, okay. How many of you all remember when you were young and skinny? Maybe some of you are. <clears throat> you were young, skinny, athletic, and you saw her, right? And you got down on your knees in a solemn prayer posture that would put Tim Tebow to shame. And you prayed, Father, oh, I want her to be my soulmate, my wife. Oh, Lord, please let it be her. Right? And, and, And you girls have done the same thing. Oh, Lord, let it be him. Right? You've prayed these prayers. I know I have. (laughs) Okay. And God said, yeah, no. No. Okay. And at the time you were like, (laughs) I'll never be the same. Whatever. Okay. You got over it. And then you finally met somebody who turns out to be a great match for you. You have a fantastic marriage, you know, things like that. You got married and things are working swell. They're working fine, right? Okay, and then you go to your like, you know, 20 year um, you know, high school reunion and then you see her and you go, "Oh man. I am so thankful God did not answer my prayer with a yes." Right? That happens, okay? So, listen, okay? God answers prayer. Okay? And he doesn't always answer it the way we want it. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says yes, and then he adds things to it that we could have never possibly imagined, that we needed or that we understood. Because understand, he's God, you're not. Okay. Sometimes when you pray for like an unsaved relative, like maybe it's a son or a daughter, okay, they never come to faith. They die pagans, despite all your prayers. Okay, and then sometimes think of Monica. This is uh, the the mother of Augustine. She was a faithful mother who faithfully prayed for her son, okay, that he would be converted. He was a hedonistic pagan, and he was brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins, and becomes one of the great uh, church fathers and theologians of the church. Right? Okay. Sometimes that's what happens. But, you know, listen, God in his sovereignty has prerogative to answer yea or nay. Sometimes when you pray for somebody who is ill or they have a very bad disease, maybe it's cancer or things like that, and your prayers ascend for this person on their behalf, God miraculously heals them. And then sometimes the miracle is that their body dies and they go to be with the Lord in his presence, in his heavenly kingdom for eternity, okay? So, yeah, um, the way he's talking is is that somehow, you know, know, if if your church is alive, there had better be miraculous stories of divine, glorious intervention because this proves that God is present. You want to know how I know that God is present in our church, the church that I attend, and the church that I teach at? It's real simple. Because God's word is rightly preached. Sins are confronted with God's law, and I mean forcefully. And sinners are comforted 
with the good news of Christ and him crucified for our sins and raised again bodily on the third day for our justification. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, the main focus of our church service is Christ, a crucified and risen Savior, bloodied, beaten, scourged, died, buried, raised again for our justification and for the forgiveness of our sins. It's glorious, and God's word is rightly proclaimed. And oh, the great doctrines of the, uh, of the historic, confessional Christian church are proclaimed, sung. Um, and it's, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And so this, you know, that's how I know God is present. Because Jesus himself said that when he ascended into heaven and he would send the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would convict the sin, the, the, uh, the world of sin and unbelief. And that happens in our church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And it's glorious. And Christ and him crucified is the only solution to our sinful problem. So that's how I know God is present. Okay? Do we have um, a wallet full of miraculous stories? No. Are there stories in our church of... of answered prayer that clearly demonstrates that God is, is, is hearing our prayers and answering them? Absolutely. And yet those answers are not always what we expect. We continue. Well, here in Exodus 32, this will bring us to a close. He's up on the mountain. His terrible brother assistant, who is just awful in every way, has... I mean, Aaron was a disaster. When Moses is gone, Aaron's like, here's what we're going to do. And please, I know... Please don't laugh at this because it's just... It's awful. He says to them, melt down all your... Give me your gold. And he melts it down. He makes it into a calf. and, And all the people take their clothes off in this debauchery and they start dancing around the fire and then they start bowing down to the calf and saying you are our gods you brought us up out of Egypt and the Lord sees this Exodus 32 9 and the Lord said to Moses I've seen this people and behold it is a stiff necked people remember that part now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that they may make a great nation of you it's like we're going back to Adam. We're starting over. These people are so stubborn. I can't go with them. 11 through 14 of Exodus 32 is one of the most beautiful pictures of intercessory prayer in all of the scriptures. Moses pleads for this wicked, evil, rebellious, stubborn people. And it says in verse 14, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So Moses comes down off the mountain in a rage. Verse 19, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that he had made and he burned it with fire and ground it to powder and and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. You think this is so great? You think this is so great? You think this is better than God? How much room do we even give for our spiritual leaders to give us a word of reproof or rebuke when our conduct is out of line and not appropriately respectful of the presence of God and the holiness of God? We're not consumers. I'm not an entertainer. We're trying to get God's heart on a matter here. And yet he is spent, literally, at this point we are, oh man, 
50-something minutes into this, and he spent the majority of his sermon time entertaining us. Again, it's just surreal. Exodus 33. God says, tragically, verse 3, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Just think about it. God says, you go. I'm not going with. Why, God? Why? Lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. Now, put that together with 32.9. Two times in two chapters, God says, I'm not going with stubborn people. I'm not going with stiff-necked, right? That's, somebody says to you, would you do this? Would you do this? Would you stop doing this? <laughs> Stubborn. We are a stubborn people. God calls us to weep over our stubbornness. Okay, now, I'm going to give James McDonald props here, okay? And here's the reason why. This is going to be blistering law preaching here, which, by the way, is an important element in gospel preaching. The problem is he never gets to the gospel, so it only ends up with the blistering, withering law, and he, again, misses the clear gospel in Exodus 34. I'll point it out to you in a minute. How many times has a preacher stood up and poured out his heart about how this is milk and bread and meat for your soul, and you need it regularly, daily, but you don't do it? Because you're stubborn. Okay, he's definitely convicted quite a few people there in the audience. Is he going to give him the gospel? Answer is no. He never does get to the gospel. How many men have been told that the emotional nourishment of their wife is their responsibility, but they sleep in that bed with their back to that woman? Priding themselves on some misplaced notion of faithfulness. I've never been unfaithful to my wife as though somehow the philanderer is worse than the cold-hearted husband in the home. They're not that much different. Okay, again, he's properly calling out very real sins. And he's describing them beautifully and even has a sense of righteous indignation and anger towards these sins. Perfectly fine with that. We need this kind of preaching. But it can't end with this. Because the solution isn't just try harder, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The solution is a crucified and risen Savior. Which, by the way, I'm going to show it to you in Exodus 34 of all places. We continue. Both of them are incredibly unfaithful as lovers. And you know that's true. But what do you do about it? Because you're stubborn. And how many times have you been challenged, men, about personal purity? And how many times have you been told, ladies, that gossip and slander and a critical spirit is like cancer to your soul and it destroys everybody that it touches? But you still keep moving your lips and flipping on that computer and going to that nasty place and... Again, this is a perfectly legit confrontation of people's sins, calling it out and describing it in true 
sickening details. This is part, and I mean only part, but this is part of gospel preaching, preaching God's law to strip you of your self-righteousness. No problem there. So far, so good here. Because you're stubborn. And God says, I don't go with stubborn people. I don't go with them. And church is supposed to be a place that assaults our stubbornness. Okay, i got to start to lay down uh, like a biblical stake here. God doesn't go with stubborn people. Well, he still went with the children of Israel. How is that possible? The answer, by the way, is in Exodus 34. Wait for it. We need to be taken and shaken on a weekly basis. But we hardly have ears to hear it. And that's why, though false uh, prophets who prophesy falsely and priests who rule on their own authority are surely part of the problem, but as 2 Timothy 4 says, we have gathered around ourselves the teachers that we want to itch our ears. Okay, another perfectly great passage, and he's spot on here. Why is there so why are there so many horrible apostate teachers? Because people have gathered these teachers for themselves to tickle their itching ears. The blame falls on the people in the congregations. Yeah, you sit there and you're disgusted by somebody like Joel Osteen or Stephen Furtick or Perry Noble. <laughs> the people who are ultimately responsible for them are the people sitting in the seats in those auditoriums. He's right, yeah. yeah. And the reality is, is that the reason things are as they are, number one reason is because my people love it so. Pastors are fearful even to stand up and preach a message like this. Um, yeah, you're right, um, but you didn't do a good job. Because you didn't give us Christ as the solution. We continue. Well, it isn't easy. I can tell you that. And there is a spiritual battle that attends. I can tell you just from 30 years of ministry that what you're preaching on, Satan knows it. And I'm telling you, I can get up and preach on relationships for the rest of my life. And every day is a sunny day. But you start preaching on the holiness of God and the righteous character of Jesus and the power of the changed life in Christ and, and, and you shine the light on the enemy and his schemes. Game on. I'm telling you. And it's so easy to shrink back from that kind of ministry. God, forgive all of us. Moses, the people, first of all, are so distraught by this word. It says in verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word they mourned even in their post-idolatrous hungover state they knew that God's presence with them was disastrous Moses continues to plead with the Lord please Lord if I found favor in your sight you say that you know me and in verse 14 God incredibly mercifully oh that he would say this to us he says my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest Moses says, for how shall it be known? I have found favor in your sight. Check this. I and your people. Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? Y'all should underline that in your Bible. That's what I came here to say to you and I'm going to be finished. Is it not in your going with us that we're distinct? The distinct mark of God upon the people of God is his own manifest presence. 
False application here. We're not traveling through the wilderness of um, of Sinai or anything like that. Um, yes, God does go with us. His presence is with us, but it's not the same thing. I'm sorry, but we're, our churches are not led by a, a pillar of fire by uh, by night and a pillar of cloud by day or smoke. I just um, this is a false application of this text and he's missing the gospel we continue rotary club with music okay that's all we are if god's not showing up and doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves if church is not a place where god comes down and mountains quake what's the point so he wants god to come down and for mountains to quake that's what church is not supposed to be entertaining it's not supposed to be helpful okay it's supposed to be powerful it's supposed to be vertical. It's supposed to be God. That's what it's supposed to be. More browbeating. If we don't come back to that, this is not going anywhere good. Well, Moses gets the good news that God's going to give them another season in his incredible mercy. And he prays this finally. He just prays, show me your glory. See, Moses had been up on the mountain. He knew what the presence was. And he's like, okay, well, good. You're going with us. Show me your glory again. See, once you've got this, once you've tasted this, once you've experienced what it's like for God to come and move and take us apart, you just can't do the checkmark church thing anymore. Um, Moses wasn't talking about checkmark church. You're reading that into the text. This is eisegesis. And you just got to have that and you've got to go after it more and more and more. And might I just say, as I close, that God is not reluctant God is not unwilling. His arm is not short that he cannot save. His ears are not dull that he cannot hear. Isaiah said that our sins have separated between us and his God. Our iniquities have hidden his face from us. True. So that he will not hear. And the solution is what? Notice the sappy music. Let's turn our attention to that. Let's all just kind of bow our heads together and... I want us just to pray. Alright, so he's gonna... I'm gonna stop right there. He doesn't preach the gospel. He blisters everybody in the crowd, and rather accurately, too, biblically, um, with God's law to call out their sin, to rebuke it, and there's no gospel, none whatsoever. Now I want to show you what's really going on in Exodus 34, okay? If you have your Bible, I'm going to start at verse 1, and I'm going to cross-reference this with Mark chapter 10, okay, which I think is a legit cross-reference, and you'll see why here in a minute, okay? Exodus 34, verse 1, okay? So the whole golden calf thing has happened. God has said his horrible thing that he's not going to go with him. Moses has had this great intercessory prayer this is where we're at at this point. So the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. Because remember, Moses broke the originals. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, and as the Lord had commanded him, 
and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Listen to this. So, okay, this is this is the glory of the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the glory of the Lord, right? And what is announced when God shows up, when he rends the mountains, right? Listen to the message. The Lord, Yahweh, a God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, here's the best part. It doesn't end here. So here we lead off. He leads off with the gospel, our merciful, kind, slow to anger, forgiving iniquity and transgression gods. But listen to this. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in our midst, in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Okay, let's pick apart God's statement regarding himself. It begins with gospel. He says he doesn't pardon. He will by no means clear the guilty. And says that he's going to visit the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children to the third and fourth generation. This sounds conflicting, doesn't it? But the whole thing here, this proclamation is law and gospel in a nutshell. Okay? Because here's the deal. You and I, we have something in common. We are as guilty uh, as sin because we have sinned against God in so many and diverse ways that we have sinned against God in thought, in word, in deed, by the things we do, by the things we don't do, you and I are in deep kimchi when it comes to God, because here it says he will by no means clear the guilty. Yet he says that he's slow to anger and forgiving and all that kind of stuff, but you and I are guilty. See, this is the important part. God doesn't clear us. He doesn't just dismiss our sin. He pardons us by becoming a man in Jesus Christ, Right? Jesus is God incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary, right? He doesn't clear the guilty. He takes our place on the cross. And now we come to the cross reference that I mentioned here. So here, I just want to make something clear. James McDonald talks about how Moses wanted to see God's glory, but he never gives us the gospel to let us know that it was God's mercy and forgiveness won by Christ on the cross. At this point, they're looking forward to the redemption won by the Messiah, right? That That's the reason why God goes with them, because he pardons their sins. He forgives their iniquity. All James McDonald did at Vertical Church was browbeat people with the law and demand miracles and glory and all this kind of stuff. And yet the glory of God 
is not divorced from. In fact, the glory of God is intimately wrapped up with the gospel itself. Okay, let me give you a, a, the cross reference. Mark chapter um, ten. I'm going to go to verse 35. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Here's what it says. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. One at your right and one at your left in glory your glory. Okay? That's the setup here. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, well, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. So who was it that was on Jesus' right hand and left when Jesus came into his glory? Answer, Jesus was crucified between two, two thieves. Jesus came into his glory when he was crowned King of kings and Lord of lords, the King of the Jews, on the cross. Jesus was in his glory when he was suffering, bleeding, and dying for your sins and for mine. And on his right hand and his left were two thieves. One repents and believes. The other hurls mocking insults at Jesus in his glory. See, the glory of God, according to Exodus 34 and many more passages, the glory of God is to forgive transgressions and iniquity. That's the glory of God. And that's the glory that Moses saw and heard. The message that came with the glory of God is Yahweh, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the glory of God. And because the vertical church, both the book and the tour, completely miss the fact that God is glorified in the forgiving of sinners, that Jesus came into his glory when he was stark naked, bleeding, bruised, scourged, beaten, with a crown of thorns rammed into his skull. Hands and feet pierced with nails, bleeding, suffering, dying. That is when Jesus is in his glory. Because God doesn't clear the guilty. And on that day, Jesus had the sins of the world upon him. Yahweh, 
is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So, that's the problem with vertical church. It seeks glory where God's glory really isn't... It's, it's, it seeks glory apart from, without emphasizing, without proclaiming, without even a thought towards the concept of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Law and gospel, sin and grace, pardon for sinners, and judgment for those who do not want to be forgiven. For God is glorified, and the angels rejoice when one sinner is brought to repentance and is forgiven by our merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and forgiving God. That's what that's what's missing from vertical church. So, will it ultimately be able to help the church turn around? No. It was a show that Christ wasn't there. He wasn't preached. He wasn't proclaimed. And nor was he even remotely even thought about as the solution to the problem that the church faces today. Sad. Very sad. As far as I'm concerned, the whole thing's a waste of time, gas, and money. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe to my Facebook feed, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on subscribe. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Good sermon on the other side of the break. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo-written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. We're going to be listening to a fantastic sermon by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, but we'll do this right. Hang on. Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's fantastic sermon comes to us via Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Hanley Stoke on Trent, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley presiding. The name of the sermon is Take Heed How You Hear. This is a sermon based upon the parable of the sower and the seeds. From the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 1 through 23, there is no need for me to read the text first. Pastor Charmley always begins with God's word first, and then he exegetes it. It's, a, it's just a great sermon. <clears throat> In fact, you know, um, let me just do this. I, since I can't really add anything to it, I mean, like be like, you know, adding extra strokes to the Mona Lisa, you know, things like that. Here's Pastor, let's just get right to it. Here's Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 4, verses 1 through 23. Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 1 through 23. Christ is here presented as the great teacher, the one who taught the people in parables, though they did not understand him, yet he teaches and he speaks truth for those who will hear. So Mark chapter 4 verses 1 through 23. And again he, that is Jesus, began to teach by the sea. And a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables, and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, 
the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no crop but other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up increased and produced some thirtyfold some sixty and some a hundredfold and he said to them he who has ears to hear let him hear but when he was alone those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable and he said to them to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God but to those who are outside all things come in parables so that seeing they may not see and they may see and not perceive and hearing they may hear and not understand lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them and he said to them do you not understand this parable how then will you understand all the parables the sower sows the word and these are the ones by the wayside when the word is sown when they hear Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts these likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who when they hear the word immediately receive it with gladness and they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time afterward when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake immediately they stumble now these are the ones sown among thorns they are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful but these are the ones sown on good ground those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit some thirtyfold some sixty and some a hundred also he said to them is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed is it not set on a lampstand for there is nothing hidden which shall not be revealed nor has anything been kept secret but that it should come to light if anyone has ears to hear let him hear we trust God to bless the reading of his sacred and precious word our text this morning is found in the chapter we read from Mark chapter 4 and verse 9 and he Jesus said to them he who has ears to hear let him hear he who has ears to hear let him hear Jesus came teaching he came teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes who came with precedents and quotations and so on and so forth but no authority Jesus came teaching he came as we sang speaking of heaven but he came from heaven and yet how many heard him on one level of course we could say many heard him we have this great multitude presented to us here this multitude on the seashore and yet really when Jesus was with us on earth very few heard him very few actually listened there were not many in that upper room on the day of Pentecost and they were all those who truly had heard him in the deepest and fullest sense and here in this parable we have Jesus talking about the importance of hearing his word and so we see first of all the preacher secondly the question the matter of perception and thirdly the parable I have spoken of course in some depth on the meaning of the parable itself 
The meaning is set out by Jesus. I said, spoken of that before. But here we have the context. Why is it that Jesus told this parable? And so we have him first, the preacher. Jesus, the preacher. He came teaching. The old Puritan said, God only had one son and he made him a preacher. And Jesus was a preacher. He teaches, he speaks. And we are to hear the word today. The crowds, of course, we've seen again and again in this gospel, the crowds thought of him, first of all, as a miracle worker. They were interested, as crowds generally are, in the spectacular. The healings, the exorcisms, one can think particularly the exorcisms, because they would have been quite spectacular. But that which is obvious, that which is open, they wanted miracles that they needed teaching. It's important that Jesus does not come for our felt needs. He comes for our unfelt and deepest needs. The vast majority of people, if you ask them, when you speak to them on the street, they are not conscious of sin. Most people will say, well, I'm a good person really. They're not conscious that they need forgiveness, that they need pardon. And yet, the Bible is absolutely specific, Christ is absolutely clear, the deepest need is pardon of sin, is peace with God. But the vast majority of mankind do not think they need it. They don't think about God. And yet Jesus comes teaching and declaring the needs that we didn't realize we had that are the deepest, the greatest. And so, making sure that the crowds do not throng too closely around and he gets this boat and he sets out a little way off the shore, far enough for no one to be able to get to him. And he preaches. Now, apparently this idea in open air work by the seaside of taking a boat out and preaching from it is very effective. In the 1840s, in the Free Church of Scotland, there were many in the Highlands and Islands, particularly the Islands, who did this. They couldn't get a place to worship on land and so the preacher would go out to sea and the congregation would be on the shore. And if you find the right situation, sort of natural amphitheatre, then many, many people can hear in such a location. So it was a tactic that first of all got him away from the crowds and secondly ensured that everybody could hear. And he teaches and he makes it quite clear later on that the masses had no idea what he was talking about. None whatsoever. They were superficial. And there's always a danger of reading the Bible superficially or hearing the Bible superficially. That is to say, quite commonly done, someone will take a verse out of context. Now, the Bible originally had no verses. Verse numbering is only about 500 years old. 
perhaps less than 500 years old originally, there were no verse numbers. And so, if we read a verse in isolation, and we think the verse has a meaning in isolation, then we're wrong. No Bible verse has a meaning in isolation. Every Bible verse has its meaning in its context. So if you ever hear someone basing a sermon entirely off a Bible verse taken out of context, then you should be very suspicious as to what they are teaching you. Now there's nothing wrong with someone preaching from an isolated verse if they are really preaching from it in context. So they may speak from an isolated verse as a text, and yet as you listen to the text you realise that what's being said, this is the meaning of the verse, drawing upon where the verse really is. A verse from a statement from a parable is not to be taken the same as a statement from a history. A statement in poetry is not to be treated as though it was poetry, and so on. Don't read the Bible superficially. You search the Scriptures. The Bereans were commended for searching the Scriptures to see whether these things were so. That is, they were diligently studying. They were looking at the Bible, not simply skimming over the words, but reading them carefully, asking, what does this mean? How does this fit in with that? And so on. There can be no superficiality. And Jesus taught in parables. Now, of course, the word parable in the Bible doesn't just mean a story. It can be used for something as in the previous chapter. Chapter 3, verse 23, we're told that Jesus spoke to the scribes in parables, saying, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand and has an end. And they are, we tell those are parables. And yet, they're very different from this story of the sower. The point about a parable is it's a comparison. The word literally means to place alongside. And it's a comparison. It's something that is like something else, something that illustrates a spiritual truth. It is a story, it's been said, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And certainly the point is the thing, the meaning is the thing. And it has a point. And parables can be, at times, quite fantastic, not so much Jesus' parable, but there's a parable in the Old Testament in the book of Judges where we have talking plants, talking trees. Because of course, it's a parable. It's not fact, it's a form of fiction that is teaching truth by veiling it. But also, Jesus says, and so we come to our second point of perception, he taught in parables not, and you often hear people say this, Jesus used parables the way a preacher should use illustrations to make it easy for people to understand. But here Jesus says he used parables to make it harder for people to understand. That so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand. There's a sense in which parables are harder to understand. 
And the sense is this, the parable needs a key. You need to know, in this parable of the sower and the soils, what the seed is and what the soils represent, because otherwise it's completely meaningless. You can find, I wouldn't recommend doing it, but you can find books in which people basically take the parables and they say, well, here's the explanation Jesus gives, but I don't agree with it. And they will give some other explanation. And you can do that, you see, if what you do is you throw away the key. And you can interpret it any way you like and make it absolutely fantastical. And people have done this. Because if you don't have the key, if you don't know that this parable is about people hearing the word of God, then you can't understand it. If you don't know that the prodigal son is about the grace of God in receiving sinners, then you don't understand it. You can go through all the parables. And it's absolutely vital that there is one thing when you are reading or hearing the parables of Jesus, and that is faith in him. Unless you have faith in the Lord Jesus, unless you believe that he is the Son of God who has come into the world to save sinners, you cannot understand the parables. So the parables have this meaning to those who believe, but to those who do not believe they have no meaning. And that's the problem. That is why Jesus says parables conceal the truth from some people. Parables need to be worked at because only disciples can understand them. Now, of course, disciples are those who are learning of Jesus. Unless you are learning of the Lord Jesus, unless he is your teacher, your master, you cannot understand the parables. That's just how it is. Now Jesus is not saying that there are some people who naturally have the ability to understand these things and some who don't. And you look at this, here are the disciples and they're the ones who come to him and say, in effect, tell us what it means. They're the ones who don't understand, but they know they don't understand and they come to Jesus seeking the interpretation. Because in fact, nobody is able to follow Jesus, no one is able to hear, to perceive, unless they are born again. Unless you are born again, says Jesus, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You cannot perceive, unless you are born again by the Spirit. There must be that inner transformation, that work of the Holy Spirit, before we can follow him as the hymn writer says, It is not that I did choose thee, for Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. It is the call of Christ. The work, it, it is all of grace. We do not come to God by our own efforts, by our own work, but God comes to us. And so we come to the parable itself. The parable that Jesus told. A parable that is all about hearing. He was ears to hear, let him hear. And that's the key word of this whole section. 
It's about hearing the word, the sower sows the word. The word of God is so. Now people have looked at this parable and said, well what the sower does here, it's kind of quite comic really, people taking these parables and they take them out of context and they say, and there is, there is an interpretation out there, I have read it, that says that what he's doing here is criticising what the sower is doing. And it seems to me that is a, an amazing way of missing the point. He's not criticising the sower at all. Look at what Jesus actually says. No. The point is, the seed goes everywhere. In other words, we're not to say of anybody, well look, that person over there looks very unreceptive, so I won't sow there. No, the sower sows the word on the pathway, on the shallow soil, on the soil with the thorns and on the good soil, the sower sows the word absolutely everywhere. Jesus said to his disciples, go preach the gospel to all creation, literally every creature. Of course, if that's a figure of speech, what he's saying is that the word is to go absolutely everywhere. He's not literally saying we should be preaching to the birds and the animals. He's saying that the word should be preached absolutely everywhere. That people are not to say, well, those people don't look terribly receptive, we won't go to them. We're not to say, well, that people group are incredibly hard and we won't go to them. We're not to say, well, there's all these fanatical Muslims over there, we won't go to them. We're not to say, as they said to the missionary, the New Hebrews, John Payton, you'll be eaten by cannibals, don't preach to them. We are to take the word everywhere. Do what we can to spread the word to everybody. Doesn't matter who they are, where they are, what they think, what they're like, the word is to go everywhere. The church is to seek to take the gospel to all the world. And the responses are not about the sea. It's not that the word of God is ineffective. It's not about the sowing, it's about the soil. The point is the soils. And that's why to call this a parable of the sower is a little bit misleading. It's really the parable of the soils. And these soils represent these different responses. The seed is all good. But people respond differently. And the difference is not, first of all, in human merit, but in human sin. We have these three soils that in the end produce nothing. First of all, you have the pathway, the hard heart. The, soil, the seed is sown, but the hard heart pays no heed to it. It may be that it's someone who is prejudiced against it so that they are not listening to receive, but listening to criticize. There were people who came to Jesus looking for something to condemn him for, not to actually hear what he said. 
It may be that someone is just so incredibly superficial that their mind is on other things all the way and they never really hear at all. And so Satan comes and takes away the word that is so in their hearts and they can't even tell you what it was. Satan comes and takes it away and so they produce nothing. There is no faith. There is no repentance. There is no sanctification. And they go on never any better. Because that path is so hard that nothing can sink into it at all. Nothing sinks in. Secondly, we have this soil, the, the, the stony ground, not soil mixed with stones, a gravelly soil can be quite fertile. But this is a situation very common, of course, anywhere where you have outcrops of rock, where there's a thin layer of soil on top of the rock. And of course, in a, an arid climate, or semi-arid climate like Galilee, when that happens, you know, the rains are certain, certain times of year, and the crop will spring up quite quickly because it can't go down. So all of its growth potential goes into the going up. The problem is not in the crop, it's in the soil. But then of course when the sun comes out and you have hot weather, a warm summer, it shrivels up and dies. And Jesus says, this is those who hear the word. And immediately receive the gladness. And there appears to be such a reaction. And we see this time and again. Somebody appears to be converted. And they're so enthusiastic. They're so full of joy. But then the going gets tough. And all those, all those who would live a godly life in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. In the world you will have tribulation, says Jesus. And the trials come and they go back to the world. Because they don't want to suffer. They don't want trouble. They were never really converted. They were enthusiastic. But there was no root. No depth. And so again, there's nothing. Then you have the thorns, as I said. The children, the situation would be such as it is in agriculture in these areas today where the old methods are used, that you would burn off the weeds. And a root would remain, and of course, the thorns spring up and they choke the crop as it comes up. And they are those who hear of the cares of this world, the sequence of riches and desires for other things entering in, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. I said, it's the opposite, really, of those who fall away because of persecution. It's those who fall away because everything's going well. Because they don't feel the need for Christ. Never really felt the need. They don't 
find it as wonderful as they did. And there's so many other things to do. They have the deceitfulness of riches. Those who put their trust in riches are those who are deceived by them. And the idea, well, I have so much, and I will use it for myself. And I am the trusting in riches rather than in Christ. The desires for other things are such a, such a snare in our society. And yet you'll find in any society, the desire for stuff. There are whole pagan religions based on the desire for stuff. And this materialism, as we use the word properly, not its philosophical meaning, it is that matter is all that is, but the popular meaning that matter is all that matters. Stuff is what matters. And so people set themselves to acquiring stuff and things. Nothing wrong with property, with possessions. Only when you put your trust in them. And when that becomes your great concern. And when thoughts about money and stuff and things choke thoughts about God, that we have a problem. And so it chokes the word in these cases and they, they go away, disappear. They cease to make any profession at all, many of them. They appeared to receive the word, but they didn't really. And the word produces nothing in them, but then you have the good soil. And again, we must emphasize the good soil is good because it has been made good. Isn't that the case with any farmer's soil? The farmer's put a lot of effort into fertilizing it, into taking the stones out of the field, to making the field as fertile as possible, and so it is with those who produce a harvest for God. It's not that they are better people, it's that God has put effort into them. We are not saved by our works, but by faith. And this is Paul, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. John records, John writes in his, his Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 12, about the sons of God, the children of God. And he says this, To as many as received him, received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Makes it absolutely clear. Anybody is good soil, they're good soil because God has made them so and so to God. Not to the soil goes the glory. See, if people made themselves good soil, then we could look down on other people and say, well, so and so is not a Christian, I am a Christian, that means I made myself good soil. The Bible doesn't allow us to do that. The Bible forces us to say, God made the good soil. If anybody, anybody at all, looks down on those who are not yet Christians, because remember, God can call who he will, when he will, how he will. If you look down on those who are outside and you judge them and say, 
And in fact, I'm better than them. You've missed something about grace. Because the whole point is that salvation is of the Lord, not of man. That he is all of grace. Lest anyone should boast. And there can be no boasting, save rejoicing in the Lord. And so we look at the scriptures and nowhere do we have people boasting, rejoicing that they are better than others, but rather rejoicing in the grace of God, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If you ever read the story of the man who wrote that hymn, John Newton, it's a wonderful story. Brought up at first in a home with a Christian mother, who died when he was fairly young, he, went, he ran away to sea, and with the sailors, he determined to be as profane and wicked as he possibly could be. As a man who set himself at one point to invent new swear words, new oaths, so he could be as prof- the most profane sailor on the entire ship. And God saved him. A man who had ridiculed faith in God ridiculed Jesus and yet God brought him out of that and made him not only a Christian but a preacher a hymn writer a man who would be the slave trader who would at the end of his life be one of the leaders in the campaign to abolish the slave trade. In other words he took John, God took John Newton and turned him completely around He made him a completely different man who in many ways was the opposite of the man he had been. And Newton looked back, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. And that's the response of anybody who is a Christian. As we look and we say... Oh, the grace of God, how it amazes me. How God should save a sinner like me. And we, we are left another of our hymn writers saying, So who of mercy need despair, since I have mercy found? It's wonderful. Incidentally, it can be a wonderful thing to do to look at the lives of some of our hymn writers. Because some of them were so remarkably converted. You do have men like Isaac Watts who were brought up in the faith. But you've also got men like John Newton, Joseph Hart. People who were... You'd never have said these people would be converted. Hart at one point was an out-and-out false teacher who was teaching error in the name of God and yet he was converted. And so we cannot look at anybody. We're not, in fact, we're not to use the, this to test other people. We're used to use it on ourselves. We're to ask, how am I hearing the word of God? No matter how is so and so over there hearing the word of God, how am I hearing the word of God? Am I receiving the word of God? Am I listening with the ears God has given me? Deafness is a terrible thing not to be able to hear anything at all. 
If we have ears to hear, let us hear. If we have eyes to read, let us see. And read. And take it in. And the word is to go forth, this, this last parable, verses 21 to 22, Jesus tells this parable of the lamp. And it's much more like the parable back in chapter 3. It's a simple comparison. He says, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? You consider that. You light an oil lamp. That means you you've paid for the oil. You light it. You're burning oil. The whole point of burning the oil is to illuminate. And then someone puts it under the bed. So no one can see the light. It's foolish. Someone puts it under a basket so no one can see the light. Foolish. The word is to be proclaimed far and wide. The word exists so that it is to be proclaimed. We receive the word and we share it with others. God has put us in various relationships, various situations where we are to ourselves show forth the light of Christ. And we are to do it first and foremost. Obviously we'd be careful. We're to do it by our behaviour first of all. To live as Christians so that people ask, why is it you don't do this thing that other people do? Or People may ask, you know, the, the hot button of political opinion, the political topic, what do you think? The answer comes back from a Christian point of view. And so someone says, well, why do you think that? And there is the gospel to be shared. You have the situation in the moment with these rioting, violent, murderous people in the Muslim world. And someone makes a comment about Christianity and we share the facts that Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. That while we have these people spewing hate, Christ comes preaching love and mercy. And we let the light, let your lights as Christ so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we must listen to the word. We must hear the word. The word is broadcast. It goes absolutely everywhere. But we must hear. We must receive it. Take it in. All of it. Because it's possible for some portion of God's word not to bear fruit in us. While the gospel does. There may be some other portion that doesn't. We have to take it all in. We have to hear everything God has said. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word. God has spoken. Let us therefore hear. Let us receive the word that he has given let not the world's deceitful cares, the rising flood destroy, but let it yield a hundredfold the fruits 
of peace and joy. Amen. Amen. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can follow me on Facebook by subscribing. Go to facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. It's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>